Liz's eyes brimmed with tears. Oh, Kate, how I wish you could have known Sally when she and Patrick were young. They've had such a happy life together, despite all the hardships they have faced. And it was Sally who supported Patrick as he found his voice as a lawyer. But now, she is imprisoned inside a darkened mine. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. And it's a busy day here in the studio, so let me just go ahead and introduce our host right now. A mouse, a dog, and a cat, and I'm very certain of that, Intelligent, brave, and a whiz, here's Nigel, Max, and Liz. I say cheerio, one and all. Greetings, lads and lasses. Bonjour, mes amis. Okay, then, we are on task today. We have a lot going on today. Busy, busy, busy. Indeed. Of course, we'll bring you Chapter 56 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Aye, and we'll take a trip over to Ginny's Corner a wee bit later, and then announcer lad will be taking me to the dog park. Really? Uh, That's news to me. Uh, try to keep up, lad. I told you I'd be having doggy frisbee practice today. Wait, Max, uh, what time is your practice? Hey, did you want to come watch? Well, no. I'm afraid it's no cats allowed. That's not what I... I mean, I wouldn't have a problem, but some of the guys get a little distracted by kitties. I know, <laughs> but... I... Dogs, am I right? Max, I don't want to come to your practice. Well, you don't have to get ugly about it, then. No, no, Max, I believe she was simply getting frustrated by your lack of understanding of the subtext attached to her general inquiry. Uh, aye, that's what I were thinking, too. Max, I simply wanted to know what time you have to leave. Well, not being a watchdog, I don't carry a watch. So I just figured announcer lad could drive me over there right after the show. It's our last big practice before our first game. Oh, dear. That was what I was afraid of. Oh, that's fine with me, Max. But, monsieur, I have an engagement as well, right after the show. Ah, beg pardon, but uh, did we all forget a certain mouse's eye doctor appointment? You have an appointment? You have an eye doctor? You're the mouse? I say, does no one listen to me? (sighs) So many questions. Well, I'll be glad to take you, Nigel. What's going on with your eyes? I haven't the foggiest. (laughs) Except my glasses are suddenly, well, (laughs) the foggiest. I'm sorry to hear about this, Nigel, but I have a very important meeting. It could be instrumental to my future. Really? What is it? I just received word that I am a candidate for Kitty Mensa. There's a Mensa chapter for cats? Don't sound so shocked. We are a very intelligent species. Uh, What's a Mensa? Well, Mensa is an organization for people, or in this case felines, whose intellect is considered to be in the top 2% of their species. Aye, so it be for brainiacs. No wonder it weren't familiar. Uh, Meanwhile, back in the world of superior intellect, as this is something to which I have always aspired, it would mean so much to attend. But I got to be on time to be practice. Showing up late be a good way to get benched. 
Well, I really had to pull some strings to get in on such short notice. I can't see and can't afford to miss this appointment. Well, I got to be on time. This may be my only chance to join. Well, guys, we can, life, we can work this out. We'll figure something Nigel, but Max, we just... Listen, somebody just please listen to me. Do something. I am. As you can see, this may take some time, but they'll figure it out. Now, where was I? Oh, oh yeah, uh, <clears throat> chapter 56, Gasping for Liberty. Scotchtown Plantation, Virginia, January 18th, 1773. The house was finally quiet, as everyone had finally gone to bed. But Patrick Henry could not sleep. Many things were weighing heavily on his mind and his heart, and he desperately needed these quiet moments to sort through them all. Sally seemed to be slipping away from him, withdrawing mentally and emotionally into a deep, dark pit. Ever since Nettie's birth, she had steadily become more and more depressed. He was worried not only for her welfare, but for the welfare of his children, as she had acted violently toward them. Of course, she didn't realize what she was doing, but the children couldn't understand why their mother acted the way she did. Sally's condition was a source of sadness, but also of shame. The family needed to keep her illness a secret, as many regarded mental illness as a curse. Only the family physician knew about Sally's state and had confidentially recommended that Patrick consider putting Sally into an asylum for the insane, which would be opening by the fall in Williamsburg. This was a thought he could scarcely fathom. Thus far, he had not been able to bring himself to visit the place, but with each day, he realized he had to do something. Patrick's father, John, was ill, and Patrick knew it would probably not be long before he would die. What would become of his mother, then? She and his unmarried sisters couldn't stay at Mount Brilliant with the bad state of his father's finances. Perhaps he could bring her here to live at Scotchtown. That might be the biggest blessing to the family, given the sadness that pervaded their lives because of their mother's condition. Patrick's thriving law practice required him to spend so much time away at the general court in Williamsburg, and having his mother at Scotchtown would be a tremendous help. He was gratefully able to press on with excellence in pursuing liberty for the people in court, but no one knew the personal weight he carried on his shoulders. While things were relatively peaceful between the colonies and the mother country at the moment, there was trouble stirring in Rhode Island that had Patrick greatly concerned. In June, a group of angry citizens had lured the HMS Gaspee into shallow waters and in the middle of the night rowed out to scuffle with the captain and crew to bring them to shore before setting the ship ablaze. Not that the arrogant Lieutenant Duddington didn't deserve their wrath, he had mightily earned it. Duddington constantly interfered with shipping, seizing cargo, and bullying honest merchants by forcing passing ships to dip their colors in salute to the Gaspy and firing his cannon if they refused. He despised Americans and exploited his royal orders to patrol for smugglers. But he had passed the tipping point with the citizens. 
The Gatsby incident naturally brought an angry response from London with orders to find and bring those responsible to stand trial not in Rhode Island, but in London. Everyone knew that anyone suspected and put on a ship bound for England was as good as dead. A mysterious epidemic of amnesia evidently swept through Newport, as not a single citizen could be found who saw or knew anything about what had happened to the Gatsby. A frustrated inquiry commission looking for someone to punish came up empty. While Rhode Island was off the immediate hook, Patrick Henry was deeply concerned about this threat that once more reared its ugly head to violate the constitutional right to a trial by a jury of one's peers. He knew it was only a matter of time before another incident occurred in one colony or another. The colonies must find a way to communicate between themselves beyond reading gazettes for news. Patrick knew the colonies needed to be prepared for the inevitable clash with the British lion that loomed on the horizon. He also was greatly concerned that violent uprisings, such as those in Boston, could lead to simply trading one form of tyranny for another from a king trampling on the people's rights to mob rule trampling on level-headed liberty and the law. On top of all these things was the issue that continually weighed heavily on Patrick's mind and heart, slavery. Liz sat on Patrick's desk as he thumbed through a book a Quaker friend named Robert Pleasance had sent to him. He sighed deeply and nodded with a furrowed brow. The light from the candle flickered, and he reached out his hand to wave over the flame, just as he had done since he was a boy. He looked at Liz, whose golden eyes glowed, catching the low light of the flickering candle. The king has ignored the latest appeal from the House of Burgesses to cease the slave trade, but I cannot justify it. Patrick cleared his throat and pulled back his hand, picking up a quill to dip into the ink. He took a deep breath and began writing a letter to Mr. Pleasance. Dear Sir, I take this opportunity to acknowledge the receipt of Anthony Benazet's book against the slave trade. I thank you for it. It is not a little surprising that the professors of Christianity, whose chief excellence consists of softening the human heart and in cherishing and improving its finer feelings, should encourage a practice so totally repugnant to the first impressions of right and wrong. What adds to the wonder is that this abominable practice has been introduced in the most enlightened ages, times that seem to have pretensions to boast of high improvements in the arts and sciences and refined morality, have brought into general use and guarded by many laws, a species of violence and tyranny which our more rude and barbarous but more honest ancestors detested. Is it not amazing that at a time when the rights of humanity are defined and understood in a country, above all others, fond of liberty, that in such an age and country we find men professing a religion the most humane, mild, gentle, and generous, adopting a principle as repugnant to humanity as it is inconsistent with the Bible and destructive to liberty. Every thinking, honest man rejects it in speculation, how few in practice from conscientious motives. 
Would anyone believe I am the master of slaves of my own purchase? I am drawn along by the general inconvenience of living here without them. I will not, I cannot, justify it. However culpable my conduct, I will so far pay my devior to virtue, as to own the excellence and rectitude of her precepts, and lament my want of conformity to them. I believe a time will come when an opportunity will be offered to abolish this lamentable evil. Everything we can do is to improve it, if it happens in our day. If not, let us transmit to our descendants, together with our slaves, a pity for their unhappy lot and an abhorrence of slavery. If we cannot reduce this wished-for reformation to practice, let us treat the unhappy victims with lenity. It is the furthest advance we can make toward justice. It is a debt we owe to the purity of our religion to show that it is at variance with that law which warrants slavery. I know not when to stop. I could say many things on the subject, a serious view of which gives a gloomy perspective to future times. Your most obedient and humble servant to command. P. Henry Patrick stopped and blew on the ink. A gloomy perspective already hangs over our nation, and until we can secure liberty in general for all, we will secure it for none. Mount Brilliant, February 2nd, 1773 A bitter wind whipped across the sloping meadow and down into the small clearing of trees behind the Henry home, sending a chill through the family members gathered around the freshly dug grave. The family was dressed in black bombazine clothes and wore black buckles of mourning on their shoes. Patrick Henry held his mother Sarah in a tight embrace as she sobbed against his shoulder. He clenched his jaw and fought back his emotion as his brother William and his sisters tossed handfuls of soil onto the pine coffin that had been placed with such tender care into the grave. He swallowed the lump in his throat, and the icy wind stung his eyes as tears escaped onto his cheeks. Uncle Patrick Henry read from the Book of Common Prayer. For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother, John Henry, here departed. We therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uncle Patrick recited with a trembling lip, tossing his own handful of soil onto his brother's coffin. The aging parson's voice cracked with emotion, and he paused to regain his composure before beginning again. In sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be like unto his glorious body, according to the mighty working, whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. He closed his book and nodded to the family. Amen. Amen. 
the family repeated solemnly. Everyone proceeded to quietly hug one another and then slowly turned to walk back to the house. William came over to Patrick and took Sarah from his embrace, allowing him a moment to pay his last respects to their father. Patrick stood over his father's grave and allowed the tears to flow freely. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for instilling in me a love for God, a love for family, and a love for my country. I hope I have made you proud. I will take care of Mother. She will come to live with us at Scotchtown now, and she will worry for nothing. He paused and blew his nose on a handkerchief. He thought back to the last conversation he had with his father before he died. Remember what I have always told you about that priceless jewel of liberty, Pat? A jewel is simply a handful of ordinary earth that has endured a long, difficult ordeal. The pressure, the sorrow, and the pain are necessary to turn ordinary things into priceless gems. As it is with bits of earth, so it is with us. Anything of value will cost us dearly. Never let it go, Pat. John Henry, clenching his fist, had instructed Patrick, Hold on to that precious jewel of liberty until you also reach the end of your days. Patrick scooped up a handful of soil and gripped it tightly in his hand. I will, Father. I promise. He tossed the dirt onto the coffin and allowed a silent moment to pass, brushing off his hands in the air. Suddenly he felt a warm presence by his leg and looked down to see a small white dog standing there. He looked around and saw no one. Where did you come from? He knelt down and looked Kate in the eye. I just came from France, but it were fitting to make sure you had a fellow Scot here with you today, lad, Kate whimpered, and I'll be with you in the days to come. Scotchtown, March 1st, 1773. Kate was eager to understand everything she could about Patrick Henry. When Patrick moved his mother and unmarried sisters to Scotchtown, he naturally brought along the little white dog who had shown up at his father's grave. No one knew where she had come from, but he knew that this little dog would provide comfort for everyone, especially Sally. Liz and Ms. P. were thrilled to have her here, and she quickly became a beloved member of the family. Nigel had left for London to help Al on the mission with Benjamin Franklin, so the lassies were left to watch over Patrick and Sally. How does he capture the humans he speaks to? Kate wanted to know. Study, man. Patrick always tells his law students, Ms. P. answered quickly. He knows people as well as he knows his own reflection in a mirror. We. Oui. So he has a way of getting a jury to agree with him, no matter which side of a case he represents, Liz explained. For the jury members he knows, he already has knowledge of what and how they think. For the jury members he does not know, he studies them carefully, watching their body language and expressions as he begins to speak. Liz smiled and walked, 
head down and tail low to the ground, in front of the Westie. He likes to begin in a humble posture and speak slowly, as if he does not know what he is talking about or is unsure of himself. That don't seem like a promising strategy, Liz, Kate noted with a frown. Ah, but once he tests how the jury responds to what he first says, he will stand up straight. His eyes will suddenly blaze with passion, and his melodic voice will fill the courtroom, described Liz, now rising up tall and proud with her tail high in the air. And if Patrick then pushes his spectacles to the top of his wig, those opposing him better watch out, Miss P exclaimed. That's his declaration of war, and they're in for a lengthy speech. We, oui, but he does not need to shout, for his passion, charm, and hypnotic delivery keeps the jury glued to his words. Liz paused and stared at Kate, allowing the silence to linger until the little dog leaned in, expectant for Liz's next words. Patrick's carefully timed pauses makes the humans lean in to hear what he will say next. His audience feels he has read the minds of each and every one of them as he makes eye contact around the room with his signature Patrick Flash and half-smile. So much so that some of those in Patrick's audience cannot contain themselves, Ms. P. quipped. One fella sitting in the balcony in Williamsburg became so lost in Patrick's oration that he forgot where he was and spit out his tobacco juice onto the heads of the poor people below. <laughs> he then almost toppled over the railing himself. <laughs> Miss P. snorted with a chuckle. <laughs> if Patrick can make the people laugh on purpose, he'll even twirl his wig. People come to court just to hear and see him speak. Kate's eyes lit up, and she grinned her perky grin as she wagged her tail. He twiddles his wig. <laughs> That's funny. But above all, Mon Henry is always very humble and respectful to everyone in the courtroom, Liz assured her. He has the ability to convince others of how to do the right thing, and so he is winning endless numbers of cases. He is the master at disarming those with power, and empowering those with none. He is the champion for the defenseless, like the Baptists and other dissenters. Dissenters? Those be the people who don't worship as does the Church of England, right? Kate asked. Precisely, mon ami, Liz answered. As a boy, Patrick was witness to the very first dissenter movement of Presbyterians here in Hanover County. Interestingly enough, Hanover has once again been the cradle where the dissenter movement among Baptists has been birthed. Yes, but as they've grown, the poor Baptists have suffered incredible persecution, Miss P. added sadly. The Baptists are the most vocal about deliberately disobeying the law to get a license to preach. They claim they do not need a license to preach the Word of God, and that they have as much right to preach as the Anglican parsons. So what happens when they preach without a license? Kate asked. Oh, it's simply dreadful, Miss P. lamented. 
shaking her head and stomping her hoof in the dirt. These poor souls have been violently jerked off the stage while preaching, shoved into the dirt, pelted with apples and stones, dragged away and beaten to a bloody pulp, all the while violently cursed and threatened to stop preaching. Oh, me! Kate exclaimed in horror. How can this be? I thought America had more religious freedom than in France, but it don't sound like it. What happens to the poor preachers then? Well, most of them get right back on their feet, singing and praising God, Liz replied. Kate smiled sadly. They sound just like Paul and the other apostles. We saw the same things happen to them. Jesus must be so proud of these preachers as well. Liz smiled, fondly remembering their mission of helping the early church spread the gospel in the midst of horrific persecution by the Roman Empire. We, and just like Paul and the others, these Baptist preachers have been thrown into prison. They face charges of disturbing their peace. When ordered to pay a fine, they refuse to pay and continue to preach through their prison bars. <laughs> they really do sound like Paul and the apostles, Kate cheered, wagging her tail. Crowds even gather outside the prison windows to listen, Miss P reported. And even when the constable makes the humans leave, they come back anyway, just like a gnat that won't stay away from my ear. She shook her head, tossing her mane side to side. Some of those preachers even get the hands cut with knives by hateful humans as they stick them outside those prison bars. All of this has, of course, not set well with Patrick. He and I have ridden miles out of our way to represent these poor preachers, many times at considerable time and at Patrick's own expense. You see, Kate, Patrick's father, uncle, and the Anglican church taught him that the king and church are flawless. But Samuel Davies and his mother's Presbyterian church taught him that the king and church are as flawed as they come, Liz explained. He has long been torn between the two belief systems. He will not abandon the Anglican church, but he will fight against it to protect the liberty of the dissenters. A godly nation must support religion, not run or control it, but support it. There is a difference. What is that Lord of the Conscience thing Patrick quotes from the Presbyterians, Liz? Miss P. asked. God alone is Lord of the Conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, and that the rights of private judgment in all matters that respect religion are universal and inalienable, Liz replied. Patrick's mother first taught that to him, and he frequently says, To be silent would be treason to God. Miss P. nodded. Whether those preachers pay him a farthing or not, Patrick says he must speak up for them. Kate grinned broadly. I love our Patrick more and more. So how does he help the preacher laddies then? What does he say in court? Uh, allow me to relay this story. Liz insisted, holding up her paw and giggling. <laughs> His finest moment, I believe, was when he sat in court and listened to the charges of disturbing the peace read aloud. 
He asked if he could see the paper with the written charges and slowly rose to his feet. Liz did her best Patrick Henry impersonation, wearing a grave expression and speaking softly. Did I hear it distinctly, or was it a mistake of my own? Did I hear an expression as of a crime that these men, whom your worships are about to try for misdemeanor, are charged with... with what? Preaching the gospel of the Son of God? Liz paused, walking slowly in front of Kate, who looked back at her wide-eyed with her jaw hanging open. The sleek black cat held up the imaginary paper in the air and slowly waved it three times over her head. Then she lifted her face and raised her paws to the sky, as if imploring the heavens to hear her. "'Great God!' she exclaimed loudly. "'Great God!' she repeated. "'Preaching the gospel of the Son of God! Great God!' She then calmly slinked away and sat down. "'And the case was dismissed,' Miss P. concluded. "'Patrick not only shuts up those uppity lawyers "'and doesn't charge those preachers a farthing, "'but I've seen him even pay the bail for those preachers "'without letting them even know.' "'I should mention that Patrick Henry never curses "'or takes the Maker's name in vain,' Liz clarified. "'If he ever utters God's name, he means it with respect.' and reverence. Kate jumped for joy and wagged her tail furiously. I love this story. What a bold lad he be. So you see, mon ami, our Patrick Henry has a large heart for those who are gasping for liberty, whether they be slaves, preachers, or the colonies themselves, Liz explained. And Patrick's voice will only grow louder to speak up for that precious jewel of liberty itself in the days to come. Liz paused as they watched Patrick coming over to saddle up Miss P to ride to Williamsburg. Now it's time for Patrick to decide on what to do for Sally. Lord Dunmore has finally called the House of Burgesses to meet, but while he is there, Mon Henry will visit the asylum. Suddenly they heard the shrill cries of Sally from inside the house. She's getting worse, isn't she? Miss P asked sadly. Liz's eyes brimmed with tears. Weep. Oh, Kate, how I wish you could have known Sally when she and Patrick were young. They've had such a happy life together, despite all the hardships they have faced. And it was Sally who supported Patrick as he found his voice as a lawyer. But now she is imprisoned inside a darkened mind. So Sally now be the one gasping for liberty, Kate noted somberly. But the asylum is not the answer, offered Liz. Cato's shadow appeared as he circled overhead and landed in a nearby tree. Liz started walking over to meet him. She told Kate, Stay here and look after Sally, mon ami. Where are you going? Kate asked, calling after her. To do what I have never done before. Liz looked up at Cato and let go a deep breath. I am flying to Williamsburg. I say, gasping for liberty indeed. So many heavy issues weighing on the shoulders of our dear Patrick Henry. We oui, and I thought his letter to Monsieur Pleasance was especially poignant. Oh, the one about slavery? Aye, 
that were a big problem for our country and for Patrick himself. And he certainly had a way with words, didn't he? You know, having spoken to Miss Jenny earlier about this particular letter, she assured me that this was Patrick Henry's exact letter, word for word, as it was written some 250 years ago. And you can hear how shameful he knew slavery was, even though he himself had slaves. But the whole lot of patriots were ready to fight for liberty, while not affording the same liberty to those they employed. Well, to his credit, Patrick could see a day coming when slavery would be abolished once and for all, but that it would take time and it would be messy. Aye, and I give Miss Jenny credit for putting that letter in there. With all the other details, she could have left out a few of the rough places. We, oui, but she included them, and today in Jenny's corner she tells us why. Uh, Miss Jenny? Liz, what's on your brilliant mind today? Uh, Miss Jenny, today your story included Patrick Henry wrestling with the issue of slavery. Why include this shameful part of our history? I want to be thorough for you guys. I want to make sure I've covered everything. When I started out, y'all, I was going to write one book on Patrick Henry, and that's it. And very quickly I saw, no, that's not going to cut it, because in order to fully tell Patrick Henry's story... I have to tell the story of the entire revolution so you fully grasp what his contribution to America's founding story is about. And I realized I can't do justice to Patrick Henry's words without showing you the action that was required to fulfill them and to carry them out. Something I'm bringing out in the Marquis, The Escape and the Fox that I'm writing right now is what's mightier, the pen or the sword? And I'm really hoping to stress and help you understand that it's not just the words that are said or written that are important, but it's the actions that are equally important. Just like the issue of slavery, Patrick had the right words for abolishing. But it would take much more than words. It would take many years and some dreadful actions to rid America of this shameful practice. Aye, but the revolutionary lads needed to get their own liberty before they could pass it on. And that took dreadful action of its own. We, Miss Jenny? You know, if Patrick Henry had said, give me liberty or give me death and rallied everybody to declare independence, and then we didn't fight for it, well, they would have been hollow words. Same thing. If Washington's Continental Army went off to fight without a declaration of independence to have the words that declared what they were doing to justify their actions to the world, well, it would have been kind of useless because the other countries would not have recognized us. All of that to say, I want to be thorough in my research. And because you are, we are thoroughly delighted and thoroughly informed. Uh, thank you, Miss Jenny. Yeah, thanks, Miss Jenny. Uh, meanwhile, I am thoroughly stressed with you guys and with all your appointments and engagements and the fact that none of you can drive. Can't grab the steering wheel. Too light on my feet to push the gas pedal. Uh, too short to see over the, well, the gas pedal. Right, so I don't have the solution to get you all where you need to go. Uh, not to worry, monsieur. I did some thorough research of my own. <laughs> and uh, I, too, made a little discovery that should ease your burden. I'm listening. Well, it seems that Max's dog frisbee practice has been postponed. What? What are you talking about? The dog park is closed for repairs. They are replacing all the fire hydrants. No fire hydrants? Uh, a dog park? 
Aye, that be a big problem. Indeed. Because if we don't have fire hydrants... Uh, you can plan, Max. You don't have to spend... With no fire hydrants, we can't... Put out fires. You can't put out fires. That's what you were going to say. Uh, right. So I don't need a ride then, lad. Meanwhile, here's a little tidbit regarding Liz's Kitty Mensa. <laughs> the organizers made a bit of a slip-up. With their incredible IQs, they thought it would be brilliant to set the time for the meeting by Greenwich Mean Time, which of course is the same time zone as my homeland. So... So that means the meeting took place five hours ago? Ah, indeed. And thus, uh, nobody came. <laughs> Geniuses. So that leaves you, Nigel. Do you still need glasses? Uh, he might not, lad. You see, I thought I'd do Mosey a favor and clean his glasses the other day. Yes, and while dog saliva is often considered to be the cure for all that ails both man and beast, not to mention the all-purpose cleaner that no homemaker can be without... All right, enough of the sarcasm, then. It seems me doggy spit don't work on cleaning glasses. So then, Liz decided the illustrious grooming capabilities of her kitty tongue might be the solution to my besmirched spectacles. Ew! You mean that was doggy saliva I was licking off? Oh, I am going to be ill. I'm getting no respect over here. Well, nor is Liz, for indeed she licked them clean, but a cat tongue being what it is. I like sixty grit sandpaper. Hey! Uh, how you like it? I say, bottom line... They are scratched beyond repair, and so I still do need new glasses. Yeah, so Nigel, you're the only one who still needs a ride then? Oh, no, actually, you're off the hook, old boy. I, uh, called a greyhound. You hired a bus company? No, no, dear boy. An actual greyhound. Max's friend, Rush. Oh, you called me friend Rush? Oh, boy, he's fast. Aye, he'll get you there on time. He is fast. Come on, faster than my car? Oh, yeah, Any no day contest. of the week. Not even close, mon ami. But well, thanks, thanks anyway. anyway. Uh, sure. Yeah. Glad, glad to help. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Haza! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.